Hello and welcome to another edition of P or A Raw. I'm your host, David Russell, along with my co-host, David Paulman. What's up, David? How's it going, Russell? Good to be back with another episode. Oh, yeah, man. It always is, man. We are uh, giving it to you raw because someone's got to do it, right? That's how it is. That's how it is, man. That's the deal. Yeah, we do this between debates to have a little bit of fun. Um, I'm pretty excited about what's coming up. I mean, we got my friend Teddy coming on uh, about the Shroud. She is uh, one of my friends on Skeptics and Seekers, and we're going to be talking about the Shroud of Turin, so we're going to be interviewing her. It's going to be actually pretty cool because I don't know much about it. How about you? I mean, I've done some reading on it, not, yeah, not just, nothing in-depth. Uh, like, I read, uh, well, I always heard it was, like, a big fake, um, just kind of in my church and stuff. I heard it was, like, this Catholic thing, and, you know, evangelicals just didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, but as I was studying the resurrection, I read uh, William Lane Craig's book, The Sun Rises, and he actually had a chapter in there where he made a case for the legitimacy of the Shroud of Turin. And I was like... Because, um, you know, here was an evangelical scholar who I had a lot of respect for building a case for the legitimacy of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, and then later on, I picked up a book by Gary Habermas on it. So not nothing in-depth, but I've got, you know, a basic familiarity with the arguments. Yes, so you can help me come up with questions now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I but, set myself uh, up. Yeah, but hey, uh, yeah, I don't know too much. I, I only know, like like you said, uh, preliminary stuff, such as uh, Habermas, and I, I know he was a big advocate for him. I heard him speak on it a couple times. Um, I didn't get to read his uh, – sounds interesting to me. Um, but yeah, we got that, and then we got our panel discussion coming up on uh, apologetic methodology, which you will be hosting because I'm actually going to be participating. Well, it looks like I'm going to be participating as well, so we're, oh, we're yeah. going to have to work that What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Uh, it looks like uh, I'm doing evidential apologetics. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, we got my friend Rob Lumberg doing classical apologists, uh, apologetics. Who else do we got on there, David? Oh, let's see. We've got Joshua N.G., I think, is his name. That, that, that's, you know, I'm not sure if that's his real last name, but that's what I know him as. Anyway, he's uh, representing presuppositional apologetics. Everybody grown. Um, <laughs> and then we've got, uh, let's see. We've got Caleb Jackson coming on, I think, for the third time, representing Reformed Epistemology. And, uh, oh, what's the other? Well, yeah, and then you, you're you doing Cumulative Case, and I think that's, uh, yeah, that's the whole panel right there. Yeah, yeah, I'm a C.S. Lewis guy, so, you know, I like those Cumulative Case type of apologetics, you know. So, But anyways, we also got another guest here today, don't we, David? That we do. My good friend, Travis Worth. So good to have you on, Travis. Yeah, great to be here. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah, you've been here before, haven't you? You debated uh, Mike Childs last time we were on here. Yeah, uh, I, I did the fine-tuning, and um, it, it seems like that argument uh, went unrefuted, as, as I recall. But uh, Yeah, it was, it was fun. It was definitely fun times, and we're glad to have you back for this episode of PRA Raw. And we're going to actually... Know, go ahead, go ahead, Travis. No, I was gonna say what was cool with uh, uh, Mike Childs is that... Uh, Though we disagreed, like on you know fundal, fundamental aspects of reality, you know I thought we got along, you know pretty well, and we had fun, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we try to host here is a uh, uh, a type of environment where everybody can just kind of have fun and disagree without being disagreeable, right, David? That is the goal. All right. Well, today we got something special for you. We, I found this video. It was shared in this uh, Facebook uh, group that I'm part of. Uh, where there's nothing but trolls and uh, 
anger and and madness where they hate all Christians, even though they try to get you to debate. They just troll you. But <laughs> those, those uh, are the types of groups that we leave. Yeah, it usually is. But you know what? It keeps you sharp when you can just spit back and, and just kind of like debate a little bit back. You can actually kind of stay sharp, you know. So but yeah, so um, today uh, we're going to be discussing a video by this guy named The Inquisitor even though I think he's more of an inquirer, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's pretty bad, so hang in with us. We're going to get started here in a minute, and uh, yeah, just, just hold on to your seats and your hats or whatever you're uh, wearing while you're watching this, and yeah. Here it is. Can you all see the screen okay? moment i just see black oh wait wait something's coming up oh uh, yeah all right let me try this one more time sorry folks technical all right now i got our well i had your screen but it was it was me and travis on there all right so here it is there we go ah. all right oh that was interesting there we Ooh. are and let's begin this debacle. If it's playing, I don't hear anything. Yeah, I don't either. I'm sure he's already strolling Manning by now, and I, I don't hear it. <laughs> Y'all can hear me, though, fine, right? Oh, we can hear you. Your, okay. your, your voice isn't that gentle and mild. All right, <laughs> let's see. At least I'm not a presuppositionalist, David. You know what? You know what? Uh, don't be racist towards presuppositionalists, man. <laughs> I'm in the fight against them. That, that's uh, That's got to go. All right, y'all see everything okay? Everything, uh, yeah. Hello, and welcome back. You're watching The Inquisitor. Can you hear it now? Most Christians are convinced that Jesus is part of a triune God, comprising the Holy Ghost, God the Father, and Jesus the Son. Now, this Trinity doctrine is beloved by many Christians. It helps them to rationalize how a Jew, living 2,000 years ago, could have performed miracles and raising himself from the dead. For if Jesus was a divine being, he would have been capable of anything. There would have been no limit to his supernatural powers, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the dead, healing the blind, raising himself from the dead, you name it, he could have done anything. But that isn't what Christians always believe. So, David, what do you think about this, he can do anything? Mm, well. Let's see where this starts. I do, hold on, before we say that, I do got to say I like one thing about this, uh, this video. One thing, and that's his little logo in the front by his name. I think it was hilarious. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, it seemed to be, you know, a, a fairly well, well put together um, video. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess he started out on a bad foot by saying that we were just trying to rationalize um, preconceived beliefs as opposed to arrive at the truth. But, uh, you know, I, I was willing to let that pass. Yeah. Travis? Well, um, yeah, I will kind of touch on that. It kind of seems like a misunderstanding of the hypostatic union. 
And, you know, we have the, you know, the verse that says that Jesus existed in the very form of God and he emptied himself to become a servant. So that's perfectly consistent with Christian theology. That he be man, 100% God. Yeah, you know, the first thing that really got me is is kind of like a uh, it kind of a pet peeve of mine when you say God can do anything versus saying God can do everything. And I'm like, well, you know, he can't do what's logically impossible. And that's what this guy's kind of like setting up for. And it's and like David said, he already started off on a bad foot. But nonetheless, let's 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 keep it rolling. First three centuries, Christians had many disagreements about who this Jesus fella really was. One of the fiercest debates was about whether Jesus was a god or merely human. Some Christians, like the Ebionites, thought Jesus was fully human and not at all divine. On the other hand, many Gnostic Christians insisted that Jesus had been fully divine and not at all human. Other Christians claimed that Jesus was both divine and human. Some of them thought Jesus had been divine when he undertook his ministry, but that Jesus had become fully human at the time of the crucifixion because a divine being cannot be crucified. The disagreements about Jesus' status as a god or human or both raged for centuries. All right. So did it rage for centuries, ladies and gentlemen? Well, there were certainly a lot of disputes over uh, in the early centuries of the church, so there's no debate about that. Um, I think, and you know, he didn't, at least not yet, he hasn't made this point that uh, that in some way brings into question uh, our justification for believing that Jesus Christ was fully God, which is usually how these sorts of arguments go, is it's like, oh, well, look, there was all this disagreement in the beginning. And then, uh, well, you know, we got the story of the people who won out, Uh, you know, and kind of the implication there is that, oh, well, you know, the earliest Christians didn't believe in a trinity. The earliest Christians didn't believe Jesus is God. You know, you don't see this in the earliest Gospels. You sort of see this tradition develop over time uh, into what we have today. But that is simply not um, a tenable position, in my view. It usually, you know, it depends on the Gospel of Mark and saying, well, look, Jesus is so much less supernatural in the Gospel of Mark than he is in Matthew. And then, you know, Luke builds on that until we get to John and, you know, finally in John, he's God. Now, first, I think we can build a case for the deity of Christ exclusively out of the Gospel of Mark. But I think that completely misses the point. The earliest accounts or the earliest descriptions that we have of Jesus are from the Apostle Paul, and those predate the Gospel of Mark, and it is very clear that Paul believed that Jesus was God. Uh, you know, Paul told us that, uh, you know, all things are created by him, and uh, that, um, you know, he's before all things. I believe that's Colossians 1. So uh, I would just agree with Richard Baucom when he says the earliest Christology was the highest Christology. As far as our earliest um, writings of Jesus go, in the writings of Paul, Jesus was God, so there's no evolution going on. The earliest belief was that Jesus was fully divine. Yeah, and yes, a lot of these things came on uh, uh, post-apostle, you know, a lot of these these discrepancies. And, and from, from what I gather from history was that, yeah, there, there were some early disputes as large of a scale as, as a religious war. You know, it was kind of like what the flat earthers are to uh, uh, spherical earthers today. Yeah. So I mean, it wasn't it just like when you when you get to Nicaea, uh, you know, ninety percent of those bishops 
believed in the Trinity. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, Absolutely. Uh, Travis, what do you got for us? Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to, you know, caveat on, on what David said, you know, about Paul teaching that Jesus uh, was God. And I even talked to uh, Dr. Stephen Boyce, uh, and he mentioned how in uh, the letter to the Romans, Ignatius uh, uh, called Jesus God in the year 110 AD. So we see perfect consistency, you know, through the Christian church. Uh, right on. Um, hey, Travis, do you have uh, earphones? I do not. Okay, we'll roll with it then. I just hear in the, the the your computer. <laughs> All right. Are you sure that's mine? Um, you're the only one without the 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 headphones, so that's why that's what I mean. That's usually what it is, but we'll roll with it. It was I'll not until the of Constantinople that the Trinity doctrine was finally established as an authoritative church. That was in the year 360 CE. Yes, it took Christian theologians more than 300 years to finally conclude that this Jesus person was both a human and a God. Well, that's what happens when you cast reason out of the window and base your theology on compromises between warring religious factions. Nowadays, most Christians think the Trinity doctrine is supported by the Bible. Unfortunately, many Christians have not been told that the scriptures were altered in order to make them accept the idea that Jesus was part of a triune God. It was nothing but a massive fraud. Was it a fraud? Absolutely not. As we, you know, just, just went into a little bit, um, the fact that there was controversy over this does not in any way uh, prove that the Trinity is not a biblical teaching or that uh, the earliest Christians did not believe that Jesus Christ was both fully man and fully God. Uh, and again, a, a look at the New Testament will su substantiate this. Uh, we look at the earliest writings, we look in the writings of Paul, we see that Jesus is very clearly viewed as being divine i mean and even people like you know richard carrier he makes a completely you know different argument he'll try to argue that you know oh well they didn't think of jesus as being this um as a recent historical figure paul thought of jesus as being this uh you know celestial celestial being and uh of course you know while that that's complete nonsense i think it does go to show that like at least carrier is recognizing that paul thought of jesus as this being a heavenly being right Right. So it's just it's just not disputable that yeah, the earliest yeah. Christians thought Jesus was God. Yeah. Hey, Travis, what do you got to say on this one? I would like to see his sword. I would really like to study his swords and compare it to what other New Testament scholars say. Oh, he didn't give one. Oh, yeah. Well, go figure, right? <laughs> Is that all you had to say for that one, Travis? Uh, yeah, basically, I mean, it's a simple assertion. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna open up another big can of worms here, and you guys can comment on this one too, because this is what really caught me in this section was the fact he said that the church altered the Bible. Yeah, good luck proving that. It's like, okay, how so? <laughs> you know, so from what I can tell, the gospels haven't changed. Since, you know, every time we, we find a new fragment or piece, it lines up very well. Uh, you know, we have 
we have very early documents, you know, going all the way back to the John Rylands papyrus to, uh, um, what is it? Piece is it P seventy five? It's is the I thought it was seventy two, but well, that's the John Rylands, right? Yeah. So, but P seventy five is the other one. Oh, uh, okay. is one of the other ones. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, there, we have so much evidence that, that that suggests that there is an offer. But you know, before I go there, I, I mean, you guys want to comment on that part? Well, I mean, I would just say, yeah, some people, you know, tampered with the Bible and stuff. Like, we know that there were, uh, like, First John 5, 7, right, uh, proof text for the Trinity. We know that was added in later. Uh, but the reason we can tell that is because the Bible has uh, been preserved so well that we can, you know, compare the older manuscripts that don't have that verse to the new ones. Uh, and see that that historically jibes with, uh, you know, controversies over the Trinity and stuff and say, oh, yeah, well, that this this was added in here. But that serves to the, the very fact that we can identify these additions serves to, uh, you know, confirm our confidence in the overall reliability of the Bible uh, at the textual level, at any rate, because we're able to identify these sorts of additions. Yeah, really easily to Travis, you got anything on that? Yeah, uh, I think David said it brilliantly. I mean, this kind of seems to be an attack on the textus receptus. And through textual criticism, I mean, we have error guards against that, that kind of thing. So, uh, I mean, th that's not even applicable. In fact, th the argument he gives that David provides evidence for us that we, we do have reliable manuscripts. Yeah, you know what? One thing that really gets me is historical dishonesty. Or, you know, setting the bar for the Bible beyond what it should be. Right. There's, there's you know, I think there's dis dishonesty, but there's also laziness, you know, and pure laziness. Right. And sometimes yeah. I think they take advantage of that with these sorts of arguments. They'll be like, oh, look at this. We've got, you know, um, 40 years between when Jesus died and the earliest account of his life. And, you know, anything could happen in 40 years. Like, yeah, but but what ancient manuscript can you find that doesn't have a variant? Yeah, yeah, it's just things like that. That they're, it's a lot of times what they're not telling you. Right, what they're not yeah. telling you is that no other historical documents are actually like that close or uh, have exactly. these this many manuscripts. And you know, one reason for all of the variants is because there's so many manuscripts. So. But not only that, but people are writing this by hand. You're not going to get an exact copy. Exactly. You, know, you, you, you don't. You don't have none of that's considered. Right. No. You know? No printing presses. No. No copy machines. You know, I was. I was watching James White. Uh, yes, I do. Do like his uh, New Testament uh, uh, stuff on variants and, and against uh, King James onlyism. Yeah, uh, he's kind of like you. Kind of like you, David. Even though you you take it a bit further and jump on presuppositionalism, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no. I I was listening to the day, and he was like, you know, you're not going to get 100 percent accuracy, even with the printing press. Sometimes you're not going to get that. He said, you know, matter of fact, if you want exact accuracy, you'll have to get it from a uh, a photo uh, copier, which came out in 1949. And then he was <laughs> like, well, let me think about that. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I remember the old. <laughs> photocopiers and they weren't all that great either you know so i was like well I, you know it's true i mean if you want to like, you're gonna like hold the standard to the bible 
what about other ancient works? Why aren't you telling us this? Why aren't you saying, okay, this is how history is done? You know, this is yeah. how technical critics do these things. And, and they don't do it just for the Bible. They do it for every piece of literature that's ancient. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there, there's a lot that's often not said there. Right on. Are you guys ready to go for the next one? Or, Travis, you got something? Yeah, well, no, one thing I, I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, the uh, the scribes, uh, you know, we, we kind of misunderstood. It's not like the telephone game. They were very good at what they did. I mean, that was their entire life was translating scripture. So, yeah, it's another story. Yes, sir. All right, let's continue. This video, I'm going to talk about two of the most important textual alterations. First is found at 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, while the second is at 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. Now, in some Bible translations, such as the King James Version, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 refers to Jesus as God being made manifest in the flesh of Jesus. God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Note that this appears to support the idea that Jesus was God made manifest in the flesh. However, what many Christians don't realize is that this verse underwent a crucial textual alteration. We can see this by comparing the earliest manuscripts with the later ones. For example, this is a snapshot of what you will find if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 in Codex Sinaiticus. The main point here is that the earliest manuscripts use the pronoun who rather than the noun God. In other words, the earliest manuscripts refer only to a fleshly Jesus. They don't refer to a God who was made manifest in the flesh. Note that Codex Sinaiticus was written before the Council of Constantinople at some point between 330 CE and 360 CE. So this is strong evidence that the verse at 1 Timothy 3.16 was altered after the Trinity doctrine had already been established as church dogma. In other words, the Bible was made to fit the church's teaching, not the other way around. All right, what do we got here, David? Well, first of all, I just object to this whole kind of way of, you know, approaching the issue. Um, he pulls out these two verses and like, he's like, here, I'm going to expose this uh, farce, right? Now, like, let's just grant that these verses, these two verses um, have been altered. And I actually agree with him. I think that they both have been. Uh, but, you know, what does that, how far does that really get him? Uh, I don't think it gets him anywhere. We've got several proof texts uh, for the deity of Christ that have not been altered, right? We've got uh, a number of these in the Gospel of John, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We've got this in Paul, particularly in uh, Colossians. Uh, we've got uh, just evidence all over the place for the deity of Christ, but you know, he, he does, he's not dealing with any of that. Instead, he's going to pick, you know, these areas where, yeah, it's been, it's been altered and then act like, oh, well, then we can't get it from anywhere else. I mean, that's just, um, you know, he's attacking like the weakest possible arguments. But uh, if you want to do good scholarship, you should be attacking the strongest arguments. Yeah. yeah. All right, Travis. David said. 
Okay, so, uh, you know, yeah, we would agree with him on, on First John 5, 7. Uh, but, okay, let's look at Philippians 2, 6. When it's referring to Jesus, who, uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So we clearly have the deity of Christ in, in the most reliable means. So, mm -hmm. again, your argument doesn't work. Sorry. Yeah, you know, well, let's do some textual criticism here. And Stephen Boyce, if you're listening to this, buddy, you can tell me if I'm wrong. This is just my hobby. You are a PhD. Uh, we are not all uh, PhDs here in uh, textual criticism. To, to dab with it and, and study into it a lot. Um, and, you know, from what I understand, the Greek is written in capital letters. You know, it's all caps, right? And especially in uh, uh, with the word here. And you could see... Uh, a very frequent thing in the in the in the oldest or frequent in the oldest uh, MSSs, you know, and uh, it's continual continual in like the Codex uh, Alexandrius and the Biaxa, I think, is what it's called. Stephen, you can correct me, please. I might be butchering this. So basically, if a scribe saw a faint, like let's say it's like the the uh, man, I can't even even say the word now in Greek. I, I wish I had my lexicon here, but if it's the, the the circle and the faint line in the middle is very faint, it's not uncommon for a scribe to re retrace it. So was it was it changed because uh, uh, you know some Christian just wanted to uh, uh, change it? No, they probably saw a faint line and they retraced it i mean we can't tell for sure don't get me wrong you know i'm not going to say this is for sure but this is what happens sure so like, you know is it intentional were they conforming the text into that i mean the guy picks two verses what about the plethora of verses like the statements of ego i may you know the, the in the beginning was the word and the word was god you know the word was with god and the word was god you know i mean what do we do with those I, what about all the like the verse Travis just read, you know, what do we do with all the ones that that do uh, claim his deity? Yeah, yeah and, exactly. And there's, there's one other thing I wanted to touch on too that that kind of ties into this, and we have God the Father Himself testify in Hebrews one eight, but of the Son He says, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom." So we have God the Father calling Jesus the Son God. So, uh, yeah, and I then, mean, we, we have... Uh, yeah, and, you know, he, this guy's acting like, you know, the Council of Constantinople was the stamp that uh, that put the Holy Trinity on the map. Now, yeah, <laughs> they might have revisited it at Constantinople, but, I mean, what about the Council of Nicaea? We get the Nicene Creed from Athanasius, and... It clearly outlines the, what the Holy Spirit is, and that's the council where almost all the majority of bishops were not Aryan, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, where's, where's the, the actual honesty in the, in the historic analysis here is my biggest question. Yeah, it's either, it's either being dishonest or else it's being lazy. Yeah. And that's, and, and I, that's colors, too. Being dishonest. It, it, you know, not to be uncharitable, but that kind of makes me question the, the education level of the people 
who actually buy into the, these arguments. With all due respect. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll move on. Now, if you are a Christian hearing this for the first time, you might want to check that what I'm saying is true. It's simply enough to check. That's what we're Just doing. Do a Google search on all the different translations of 1 Timothy 3.16. Timothy You'll find that some translations, like the King James Version, rely on the altar text, which has God being manifest in the flesh of Jesus. In contrast, other translations, such as the New American Standard Bible, refer only to a fleshly Jesus. Now, the second textual altar. I wonder why. <laughs> Have you yeah, ever on the one heard hand, of critical te uh, critical uh, analysis of the text, or what are they called, critical text uh, scholars? Yeah, know? yeah. The thing is, like, on the one hand, they want to accuse us of all this dishonesty and stuff, and like, oh, well, we're you know twisting the Bible to fit, um, or you know, we're twisting the Bible to fit Christianity instead of you know conforming Christianity to the text. But then when you have textual critics who actually like go back to the oldest texts, and even you know, and, and they get a ton of heat from this from King James only people for actually translating it accurately and saying he was manifest in the flesh. Uh, well, you know, two things with that. First of all, that shows that, you know, Christians are being intellectually honest, at least some of them. So he could give us some credit for that. And right. then on the other hand, uh, where does he get that he's only a fleshly Jesus? Just because it says he was manifest in the flesh, it doesn't mean that it's not referring to God. It's not right. saying that God is manifest in the flesh, maybe. But nothing about that entails that Jesus was only fleshly, like he's concluding. Right, right. Travis, well, what I would say with the flesh of Jesus, we read in Colossians 1.15 that, yes, he is flesh, but he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So he is the visible image of the invisible God. So in that way, yes, he is flesh. And uh, we also read uh, that uh, he, in uh, Colossians, uh, I, I believe it was, and in Hebrews, that Jesus took part in the creation. And in John 1, 1, that uh, without him was not anything made that was made. So, yeah, and, yes. and, yeah, and that, goes, that goes further to say, like, yeah, you got two texts. If that's all you got, we got a thousand. <laughs> we just got a ton, you know. What's so funny is we, we can grant that. Like uh, 1 Timothy, uh, uh, what was it, uh, 3, 16, and I, I know 1 John 5, 7. Uh, we know that. That's that's how textual criticism works. That's how right. we know our Bible is reliable. That's how we know the Gospel of Thomas isn't isn't scripture. I mean, you know. Right. All right. Let's let's keep rolling. Today's video is at First John chapter five verse seven. This verse is particularly important because it's the only place in the entire Bible that explicit, explicitly mentions the three component parts of the Trinity, that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Well, that seems clear enough. The Trinity doctrine must be correct, right? Well, actually no. You see, the phrase, the Father, the Word, and Holy Ghost, is not found in any of the earliest manuscripts. For example, it is not found in Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Fordensis, or Codex Amatianus. 
is talking about the Father, the Word, Holy Ghost. The earliest manuscript, Codex Sinaitica, refers to the Spirit, the water, and the blood. That's the bit shown here in purple text. There was no mention of the Trinity in any of the earliest manuscripts. In fact, the Trinity phrase at 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, only started to appear after the Church had already affirmed the Trinity doctrine at the Council of Constantinople. In other words, the Bible was altered to fit what the Church had already decreed to be the Orthodox teaching. This true, David. Let's talk about the, the common Yohannine. Well, all right. So first of all, you know, let, let's agree. First John 5, 7. I mean, yeah, that, that's completely been added into the text. We know that that's old news. Um, but he's completely wrong when he says that's the only place that you can find any kind of Trinitarian formula in the New Testament. Uh, you know, first of all, I, I don't think we need that. We can uh, get a Trinity doctrine from the affirmations that God is one God, uh, plus affirmations that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. So we can get a Trinitarian doctrine just by putting those parts together. So we don't need a formula. Yeah, but, but he's David, just not David, 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 where did the belief, belief come from that Jesus was God and part of this Trinity? Uh, since before Constantinople. Wait, you asking where it came from since then? No, since before then, because he said that, you know, everything was altered to fit that doctrine after Constantinople. But the belief, I guess, just wasn't there before. I'm being well, facetious, yeah. David. No, no, I, no, I get that. I get that. I, I was misunderstanding <laughs> what you were asking. But um, no, yeah, yeah. I think he's being inconsistent on that because he's saying like, oh, the church decided it and then... Um, and then, you know, altered the text to fit it. But yeah, you're saying, but didn't the belief already have to be around before that? And yeah, I would agree. It, it, it comes straight out of the New Testament. But um, regarding his uh, statement that 1 John 5, 7 is the only place you can find a Trinity formula, that is simply not true. Uh, if we go to Matthew 28, 19, uh, where Jesus is, you know, giving the Great Commission, he says, go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. You know, here we have all three mentioned together. Yes, it doesn't state that all of them are God, but we have them all being uh, here, you know, mentioned in equal authority. We have them all uh, that baptism is to be in the name of all three of them. So I think that, you know, this is a very suggestive text. And so, you know, to not even comment on it and pretend, oh, first John five, seven, that's all we have to stand on. That's simply not accurate. And it's weird if you ask me, but uh, Travis, go ahead. Okay, yeah, so there's quite a few things there. Uh, first of all, we get the Trinity, we get all three members of the Trinity at the baptism of Jesus, where, you know, uh, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descends on him, and, you know, Jesus is raised out of the water. Then we have uh, Luke one thirty-five that says, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be called the Holy One, the Son of God. And then, moreover, we have in John 16, Jesus promising the Holy Spirit after his atonement. So it, it's built right into the New Testament. Yeah, you know, I just got something to say on this real quick. Because, you know, the whole idea of the Trinity was there at the beginning. Matter of fact, it's not spelled out uh 
Trinity because it was already widespread belief. The homoousios was was always in play from the very beginning. To say it wasn't and that the church altered the documents later to promote that, you know, is just simply untrue. Mm-hmm. It's simply untrue. Yeah, I mean, the jo- Johanna, the Kama uh, Johannanim did not even come around to the fourth century in the Latin treaties entitled Liber Apologeticus. So, I mean, why didn't they start promoting it and change the doctrines or change the uh, manuscripts before then if they wanted to promote that teaching? It just makes no sense. And, and I yeah, think and the other thing is. Uh, because, like, uh, I've noticed a lot of uh, Unitarians, they'll look for the specific word Trinity. And we're not saying that the specific word Trinity is in there, but we are saying that it's directly implied. Yeah, and I would even go further than say implied. I would say it's actually, like, required by, uh, you know, in order to make meaningful sense out of uh, what is stated in Scripture. And, you know, we understand that, you know, the common Johannanim was not in any of the earliest manuscripts. None. And the belief it's was definitely. already there. And they didn't change then. They didn't change the, the early manuscripts to promote it. It was always, you know, it was always understood. Right. In fact, it doesn't appear in any manuscript. None. None whatsoever until, uh, I believe, like the, the, the 1500s, 15 or 1600s. Yeah. And well, that's... You know, that's well after the Trinitarian controversy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Way after. And uh, e- even when it's first mentioned, like I said, uh, uh, Metzger says that the earliest instance of the passage being quoted is a part of uh, the actual text of the epistle is in a fourth century Latin treatise entitled oh, yeah. Liber Apologeticus. So, I mean, it's not even a, it's not even a, originally a Greek thing. You know, it's not no. even in the greek you know so and but the belief was already there way beforehand oh yeah we have it quoted by church fathers so this this uh this like statement is part of a creed or something that goes way back but yeah obviously it wasn't part of the original uh epistle of first john it was added to that much later absolutely travis there's one there's one last thing i wanted is uh you know like uh you know, we, we have uh, Thomas who calls him my Lord and my God. And, uh, you oh, know, yeah. Titus, uh, Titus 2.13 says, uh, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's not differentiated. It's our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the same person. Amen. Now, this fact wasn't lost on Bible translators who had the task of translating the New Testament from the ancient Greek manuscripts. In the 16th century, there arose a huge dispute when Erasmus chose to omit the Trinity Clause from his first two editions, which were published in 1516 and 1519. He omitted the Trinity Clause because he found that none of the early Greek manuscripts contained that clause. Oh, imagine that. triggered outrage from church leaders who were determined to continue perpetuating the fabrication that Jesus was part of a divine trinity. In an attempt to quell the controversy, Erasmus told his critics he would include the Trinity Clause in the next edition, but only if they could produce the Greek manuscript with the Trinity phrase, i.e. the Father, the Word, and Holy Ghost. 
Such a manuscript was subsequently produced and handed over to Erasmus, but it was a fraud. Some say the fraud was concocted by a Franciscan who copied a Greek manuscript of 1 John and then inserted the Trinity clause at 1 John chapter 5. True to his word, Erasmus added the Trinity clause to his 1522 edition, but he included a lengthy footnote explaining his grave suspicions about the Greek manuscript that had been given to him for translation. That edition was then used as the chief source for the King James Version, which has firmly fixed the Trinity clause in many English language Bibles. Nevertheless, to this day, there are still some Bible translations that omit the disputed Trinity clause. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, funny, the funniest thing about all of that um, is that uh, what the whole controversy he is describing, that is literally hundreds of years after the Trinitarian controversies, uh, thereby proving that this was not added to the Bible. It wasn't added to 1 John uh, as any sort of conspiracy on the part of the church. It doesn't get added into the Bible until years, years after the Trinitarian controversies. And, right. you know... Right. Uh, you know, Erasmus was a Trinitarian, so he was just trying to do, you know, good textual criticism and find out what was there. And yeah, he was getting pressured by other Trinitarians to include it, but there was no disagreement there over the truth of the Trinity. It was just whether it was taught in this particular place. And you know, he, he, he like makes it out like it was this big conspiracy or something. Right. Right. For, for instance, in the New International Version, and the New American Standard Bible. So what can we conclude from this sordid history lesson? Well, we've seen that Christian theologians will not hesitate to tamper with the book that they claim to be the Word of God. They do so only to support the beliefs with which they have already been indoctrinated. But don't worry, the Bible isn't really the Word of God. It's just the end product of crazy fabrications by dishonest theologians. All right, thanks for watching, guys. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm still looking forward to that source he, he, he keeps mentioning. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I'll say, what can we learn from this pseudo-history lesson? Right. <laughs> oh, so what do you got to say about the end there? So is the Bible just a fabricated BS? <laughs> uh, I mean, that, no. That sounds like an assertion that we have demonstrated as false. Yeah, I think we did a yeah. pretty good job. <laughs> and, and you know, a couple points, you know, just to make with that is, uh, well, you know, first of all, uh, we would want to point out that, you know, the Bible is not, um, it wasn't written by, you know, fools and stuff. Like, uh, he would try to make out that, you know, oh, well, you know, these are people who just don't know what they're talking about. Uh, in the ancient world, in order to be, you know, writing at all, to be literate, you had to be an extremely educated person. So, right. you know, even even if you don't want to say the Bible's true, maybe it's not the word of God or something, to just say it's total BS like that is, um, it's just ignorant, all right? You're right, this is written by people who are, for their time, uh, very educated, very well-read people, 
and uh, and you just had to be in order to write back then because the literacy rate was just so low. And so people who act like, oh, you know, it's just stupid and stuff, and these are people who didn't know what they're talking about, um, you, you that's just so anachronistic because they think it's like today where just anyone can write, and th that's just not the case. Yeah, absolutely. Travis? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, I think it was a complete straw man. I think we demonstrated that his faults are in the uh, his claims are false. Uh, I would like to know where he's getting this stuff. Really, I mean, it seems to me like I, I mean, I can understand. I can tell you. <laughs> it's like he's just going after the TR and he's extrapolating from that to Christianity's faults. I mean. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. So, so here's where he's getting a lot of his sources from, right? Okay. He shared an order when I started, I, I, I responded to this video and he kindly responded back. And of course he, he told me I was straw manning, uh, because, oh, his oh yeah. In his comments, he, he started talking about Titus being a forgery and stuff like that. And then we got oh, into cool. that and, and then he was like, why well, didn't address uh, Titus in, in the in the video? I said, no, you addressed it in the comments. And that's what I was referring to. <laughs> so, uh, OK, so he sent me an article and guess where that article came from? David knows. I bet he already knows. I'm guessing it's going to be like Richard Carrier, Infidels okay. or um, oh, oh, goodness. Man. It's more uh, simple than that, dude. Lisa, at least Carrier can spin a web. <laughs> okay, tell me, where did it come Wikipedia. from? Wikipedia! Oh, boy. Yeah, at least it wasn't Rational Wiki. At least it wasn't that, Rational Wiki. He told me, hey, he told me that, that the majority of scholars say this and this, and I said, well, what majority scholars? What scholars are the majority? And <laughs> he gave me a Wikipedia list. And it's not exhaustive at all. <laughs> So I encourage everybody to go and, and read where I engage, where I, where, I, where I went to textual criticism on. Um, go look into that because I don't have that out in front of me. I was just kind of shooting off the hip there. So uh, look into yeah. that. I actually explained it a little bit better in that uh, in that dialogue back and forth because I was actually looking up stuff at the time. So anyways, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he gave me a Wikipedia source, guys. So that's where he's getting a lot of this stuff from, and he's making videos and thinking he's a, a, a biblical scholar there. And I, you know, I asked him, you know, are you a Bible scholar? But he never replied. He just said I was strawmanning him, you know. Because oh, oh, that's easier than giving a substantial rebuttal. The one other thing I wanted to say is when he, you know, made the point about, oh, you know, Christians won't hesitate to, uh, you know, tamper with the scriptures that they hold so dear. Um, that seems like a blatant fallacy of composition. Uh, yes, perhaps there have been some Christians that have an agenda and are willing to do that. But you know, to just say, oh, well, that means that all Christians would be willing to do that. Um, that's just not fair. Just another brick in the wall, right, David? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just you, like know, it's, you know, it's just, you know, when I brought that to him, I, I did ask him, I said, you know, why don't you actually deal with my arguments? You know, and I did invite him on the show. So let's hope he responds to that part as well. Inquisitor, you have been called out, sir. I would love to debate him. Did did the earliest Christians was, believe no, no, that Jesus you know was God? We're not gonna we're not gonna even let you you stoop that low, David. I'm gonna. Uh, well, you're. Gonna, I didn't mean that. I want Stephen to come on. Oh, shoot! I want a PhD in textual that criticism like, to come on. That would be like a joke. 
<laughs> that would be phenomenal. Hey, I want to see what the, this this guy would mount up. It would be fun. I would like to lead two verses for him uh, to reiterate on uh, Colossians one seventeen that Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's a property of deity. And then Philippians 2, 6, that Jesus was in the very form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but lowered himself to become a human and, you know, redeem mankind. So, I mean, he's just wrong right off the bat. Yes, sir. So, you know, this concludes another video that we have went through and debunked. Um, again, I'm going to say uh, James White does do a phenomenal job on the Johanna, uh, Kama Yohananam. He does a great job on it. See, I can't even say Kama Yohananam correctly today. <laughs> oh, man. But that's why we do this. It's for fun. You guys will know what I mean, and you will look it up yourselves because you are studiers and and you know you're good Bereans, as they say in the charismatic circles. Even though I don't know if any of them are. No, I didn't say that, dude. Okay, so David, <laughs> David, if you would close us with some thoughts on presuppositionalism, I'd appreciate it. You know what? Presuppositionalism. Oh, go ahead, Travis. No, no, I, I want you to. I want you to. I'm saying, please go ahead. <laughs> oh, just gonna, you know, you know, I'm going to quote Travis on this one. Uh, I'm inclined to agree with my my philosophical friends that presuppositional apologetics is complete garbage and is an embarrassment to the Christian faith. And I, Travis, I couldn't have said it any better than you did. So there we that go. was a strong statement, my friend. I, I know I know it sounds harsh, but it, it really it makes us look dumb when we have like you know people you know like, like say this this guy that we we debunk so easily. You do it. You do it with evidence, and like you know, I believe in Holy Spirit epistemology, so I can know that God exists, and I can affirm all the things that the preacher does. But there's nothing wrong with giving evidence. The evidence is on our side. It is. It really is. And you know, and, uh, with precept makes us. Yeah. With that, Travis, we uh, enjoyed having you on the show. We enjoyed your thoughts, and you know, you can come back on anytime. Uh, anytime uh, you know we get debates going, uh, uh, or or just come on and do a raw with us again sometime. We'll, we'll we'll have you on again, David. Yeah, it's kind of nice not to be debating anybody. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of fun. You just get on here and talk theology. You know, we're geeks that way. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, David. Uh, anything? Else? Hey, Travis. Before I I let you go, um, do you have anything you want to say about books or anything coming out? Anything you're doing that we can plug into? Uh, yeah, uh, well, what I'm doing more than um, uh, apologetics now is uh, I, I volunteer for Our Calling. It's a homeless outreach in Dallas, Texas. Um, that, you know, we're, we're taking donations, and um, I, I, I'm really, like, focusing a, a lot on, on outreach ministry and on apologetics, but I'm, I'm kind of leaning more towards uh, doing that. All right, well, I do outreach. Yeah, so Travis, uh, send David that link. He can put it in the description, and uh, maybe we can get some donators there for you, buddy. Um, David, you got anything else to say? No, just, uh, yeah, we got that uh, panel discussion coming up on apologetic methodology, and uh, yeah, it'll be good. Yep, and the Shroud discussion with Teddy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is David Russell, and proselytize or apostatize raw, we're out. <laughs>